This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading medical research schools. How will advances in artificial intelligence transform medical research and medical care? To find out, we invite you to read a special supplement to Science Magazine prepared by Icon Mount Sinai in partnership with Science. Just visit our website at science.org and search for Frontiers of Medical Research Artificial Intelligence. On May 1st and May 2nd, ICON, Mount Sinai, and the New York Academy of Sciences will be convening a major symposium in New York City on the new wave of AI in healthcare. For more information and to register, please visit events.nyas.org slash AI health. That's events.nyas.org slash AI health. The ICON School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. This week's episode is brought to you in part by the Eppendorf and Science Prize for Neurobiology. Are you or one of your colleagues doing great neuroscience? If so, then we encourage you to apply for the prestigious Eppendorf and Science Prize for Neurobiology, an international prize which honors young scientists for outstanding neurobiological research based on methods of molecular, cellular, systems, or organismic biology. Submissions are due June 15th. Visit science.org slash Eppendorf to apply today. Welcome to the Science Podcast for May 2nd, 2014. I'm Sarah Crespi. In this week's show, we hear about crop yields and climate change, and David Grimm is here to give us a roundup of stories from our daily news site. Support for the Science Podcast is provided by AAAS, the American Association for the Advancement of Science, advancing science, engineering, and innovation throughout the world for the benefit of all people. AAAS, the Science Society, at www.aaas.org. For years, farmers and scientists have been working to improve crop yields to get the most out of the land and climate. But what happens when the environment changes around these optimized systems? I spoke with David Lobel about his group's research into this question using data from U.S. corn farms, which supply about 40% of the world's corn. The goal of the study that we did was to look at testing whether farmers were making progress in dealing with drought. And the results seem to show that they're making much more progress in dealing with non-drought conditions. So the impacts of drought are actually growing, at least in the case of maize. So what's unusual about the data set that you're working with? Uh, when I think about agricultural research, I think that they have there's a lot of resources out there, centuries of farmers writing down crops and weather and that kind of thing. It's true. There's a lot of data that's available. Most of what's available is, is at a scale of a county, which has been very useful. But the nice thing about this data set, which is individual farm records across thousands of fields, is it gives us a lot more variation to look at. So in any one year, if we're interested in how farmers are performing in a certain set of conditions, say a certain severity of drought, we can usually find lots of farmers in that particular year that experience that. So it's a matter of getting much more variation that allows us to look much more um, specifically at certain questions. And you were looking at this data set in order to evaluate the relationship between improving crop yields and sensitivity to climate. What trends did you see happening for corn? Well, with corn, what we see is overall great progress in productivity. These are tremendously productive systems, and they're getting even more so over time. What we did see for corn is that 
progress has been much greater for what we consider good weather conditions, so cooler weather conditions. And when you get to the hottest conditions, we see actually very little progress. And there are various reasons that could explain that, but the simple observation was that the sensitivity to those hot conditions seems to be growing over time. And your group did similar calculations based on soy data. Were the results much different? Well, for soy, we see similarly that productivity is overall going up over time. That's something we already knew, really. But when we look at how different the productivity trends are for, say, drought versus non-drought, unlike corn, we don't see a big difference in the trends. So that means that there's no real evidence that soybeans getting any better at dealing with drought. But on the other hand, there's no evidence that it's getting any worse. Right. So what are some likely explanations for why corn yields are increasingly sensitive to drought conditions? There are a couple of possible explanations. I think the simplest way to think about it, and probably what's correct, is that farmers are really pushing the limits of what's possible in really hot and dry conditions. So a lot of the new technologies that have caused yields to go up over time are really being effective in years with good conditions, but there's only so much that can be done in hot and dry conditions. And so you don't really see the benefits accrue under those conditions as much. It seems that we're really optimizing our agricultural practices for the climate we have now. Is there anything we can do to optimize for some of the predictions people are making about, you know, what happens with climate change? Yes, if you expect more drought conditions, say, you can certainly change the types of varieties you're growing or the types of crops you're growing. So if you look at dry areas, that's what they do, and also change how you manage the crops. And so if you expect more of those, you could try to make a decision to use more drought-tolerant approaches. But the trade-off with that is often that you sacrifice yields in really good years. And so looking forward, it's possible that those trade-offs will happen. It's also possible that farmers decide that the best way to increase overall average yields is to really push the boundaries in the good years, and that will mean that the impacts of bad years will grow over time. Are we likely to see downshifts in corn yields as climate change becomes more and more of a factor in our lives? Well, it's been known for some time that corn is is sensitive to temperature, and, and there are lots of projections showing that the future temperatures would have a depressing effect on yields. But a big question has been whether there are ways to adapt away from that scenario where you can make corn less sensitive to drought and high temperatures. And this study doesn't say that's impossible, but it says, if anything, the trend is in the other direction where those conditions are becoming more costly. And so it says, you know, the adaptation challenge is maybe even harder than we thought. It doesn't say it's impossible, but it's going to require a lot of effort. And even then, we may do well just to keep the sensitivity same as it is now. This study looks specifically at these crops in the United States. Can these results be extrapolated beyond our borders to other countries with different climates? Agriculture is, is interesting because it varies so much depending on the crop and place you're looking at. So it's, it's always hard to extrapolate too much. The U.S. is kind of pushing, in some of our agricultural practices, just the physical limits of the plants and the land. Is that likely to be, are we able to continue that under climate change or maybe other, other places don't have that level of optimization yet? Well, the U.S. is definitely at the leading edge of what's going on in agriculture globally, the farmers and the science history of agriculture is as good as anywhere. And I do think that what you see in some of these places is that what a plant can possibly do, given an amount of sunlight and amount of water, are very close to being achieved in the farmer's fields. You see that in some cases around the world, but but not typically to the extent you see in the U.S. 
in many ways, studying the U.S. helps us understand where some other systems may be headed in the near future. David Lobel, thanks so much for talking with me. Thanks, Sarah. I enjoyed it. David Lobel and colleagues write about agricultural trade-offs in this week's issue. Finally today, we have David Grimm, editor for our online daily news site. He's here to talk about some recent stories. I'm Sarah Crespi. First up, we have a story on sex bias in research. When conducting an experiment, you try to have control over all sorts of things. Sometimes it's the room setup, like the lights or the temperature control, that kind of thing. Other times you have to control the subjects of the study, use genetically identical mice, say. All of this effort is to ensure that hopefully the only thing changing between one experiment and the next is the variable that you care about. But now there's something that might be kind of tough to change, the sex of the researcher. So Dave, what were the first inklings that this might actually matter? Well, this is a research team at McGill University in Montreal. They study pain and their typical test subjects are mice and rats. And what they noticed is that the rodents sometimes seem to feel less pain or seem to be in less pain when a researcher was in the room versus a researcher not being in the room, even the potentially the site of a researcher. They did one experiment where there was actually a standee of Paris Hilton, and, and the mice seemed to feel less pain when this standee was in the room than when nobody was in the room. What did the researchers do to see if the sex of the experimenter had anything to do with it, their research? Well, this was sort of a nagging issue with them, and they said, well, let's see if we can get a bit more information on this issue. And they tried to replicate it, and sometimes they could replicate the effect, and sometimes they couldn't. And what they figured out was the effect, this analgesia, effect, as they call it, only happened when male researchers were in the room versus female researchers. They tried to tease apart whether or not the presence of a person mattered, and it got confusing because it mattered what sex they were. That's right. And they turned out that they didn't even need to just have a person. They could have other objects in place of that person. That's right. They actually had the men and women in the lab wear some t-shirts, get them kind of stinky, and then put the t-shirts in the room. And then even with the male t-shirts in the room, that was enough to dull the pain in these rodents. And the researchers suspect that it's some sort of male scent chemical that's been conserved for potentially millions of years because what they found is the scent of unfixed cats and dogs, males, and also other rodents also produced this effect. So it's something that's been with male mammals for a really long time. And what might actually explain this effect? Why would mice care about the sex of these other organisms? Well, the researchers think it's this really primordial response. Imagine you're a solitary mouse and you smell a male nearby, chances are that male is up to no good. He's maybe defending his territory or he's looking for food or maybe he's looking to get into a fight. So that's going to make you kind of stressed out. And research has shown that when animals get stressed out, they're actually able to dull their pain response. It's evolutionarily advantageous to do that because the less pain you're feeling, the more you're able to react to the situation at hand. So now this isn't something that scientists typically write down in their notebooks. I am a boy. I am <laughs> testing on this mouse. Is this going to hurt reproducibility efforts? Well, what's really significant about the study is there's decades of animal research, and this could impact not just pain research, but any types of animal behavior research. Things like can monkeys do math or even human clinical trials. Can you imagine if you're getting an experimental drug and the administrator is a male? Are you going to feel less pain because of the drug or because it's a male? So this has 
potentially very wide-ranging impacts. Now, the researchers say we don't need to throw out decades of human and animal work, but what we really should do is start paying closer attention not to just what drug or experiment is being administered, but who's doing the administering. Next up, we have a story on some deadly errors. Since the 1970s, the United States has executed more than 7,000 people. Very few would say that our court system is perfect, which means that some number of innocent people have been killed. Now, researchers have taken advantage of just how much scrutiny these types of cases get in order to make an estimate of the error rate for capital cases. So, Dave, what was the error rate? Well, what do we think it was before the study was done? Was there even a reliable one out there? No, and there was really a range of opinions. Some people really thought that there was very little error in death penalty cases, and some people thought there was a lot. But it was a really hard thing to put a number on. This study attempted to look at false convictions in general, but narrowed the focus to death penalty cases. Why did they do that? Obviously, there's a suspicion that a wide range of criminal cases result in false convictions. But it's really hard to get numbers on those cases because a lot of them aren't reported, a lot of them aren't heavily scrutinized. Versus death penalty cases, you have often a lot of appeals. They're actually recorded. All death penalty cases are recorded in a national database. So that data is available. And that's what the researchers did in this new study is they actually went into that data, they combed through it, and they look for things like how often were these convictions overturned and uh, what sort of mistakes were made. And they came up with a number of 4.1%, which means that, according to them, more than 4% of death row inmates may actually be innocent. This false conviction rate is a lot higher than some people expected. Can this be applied to other types of convictions? Well, the researchers say this number can't directly be extrapolated to other cases, but they suspect that you would see a similar figure if you looked at other criminal cases. Does this study tell us anything about how to stop this from happening, about how to improve our error rate? Well, unfortunately, we still don't know what's behind these false convictions. But now at least we've got a solid number to work with, and people can start maybe taking a fresher look at some of these issues. Finally, we have a story on the difficulties of finding life on other planets. I don't know about you, but the amazing number of exoplanets that keep popping up makes me feel pretty hopeful about finding extraterrestrial life. But there are issues. Besides just listening for their radio stations broadcasting out to us, The options for detecting life on such faraway objects are pretty limited. Can you describe some of the basic methods we're using now, Dave? Well, one of the main methods used now is to look for chemical signatures in the atmospheres of these alien worlds. And what they're looking for is a balance of certain gases. For example, a couple of gases that shouldn't exist side by side because over time, one, because of chemical reactions occurring in the atmosphere, one would gradually disappear. The only way it wouldn't disappear is if you had organisms on the planet that were actively replenishing that gas. And so they've said, well, if we've got that mix, then that's a good sign that there may be alien life on that planet. So we're looking for a special set of conditions. So, for example, like being in the habitable zone of a star or an unexpected combination of gases. What's the problem? Well, the problem is with this gas problem. As you can imagine, researchers are looking at worlds that are very, very far away, light years and light years away. And what can happen sometimes is, even though they're trying to look at the atmosphere of that particular planet, if there's a moon very close by, they're going to capture the atmosphere of that moon as well. And say the moon has 
one of those gases that you're saying, well, that gas should sort of disappear over time. If the researchers don't know that the moon is there, they're going to say, well, there's a really nice balance of gases here. We've got a lot of X and we've got a lot of Y, so there must be organisms producing X or Y, when in fact what you have is you have the moon producing X and the planet producing Y, and it's giving you this false positive signal. So how hard would it be to determine if this overlap phenomenon, looking at both the planet and its moon at the same time, how hard would it be to find out whether or not that was going on as opposed to a truly life-generated atmosphere? With current technologies, it's very, very hard because, again, we're looking at planets that are very far away, and it's really hard to distinguish these two objects from each other. What about more exotic life systems? So non-carbon-based life, things that live in gas planets, are those even on the so-called radar for extraterrestrial life? It's a great question, and there's so much mystery about what life would even look like if it existed beyond our solar system what sort of gases it would even produce. But what's significant about this study is it allows us to at least take a skeptical eye against one of the factors that we've been considering as a sign of life. You obviously don't want to get your hopes up for life on an alien world if there could be a confounding factor there. Okay, so what else is on the site this week, Dave? Well, Sarah, speaking of scent, we've got a story about how humans can determine the gender of another person just from their scent alone. Also a story about why flies don't grow to be the size of houses. And we're all thankful for that. <laughs> for Science Insider, we've got a story about a concerning report that's just come out of the World Health Organization suggesting that a lot of the harmful bacteria out there are rapidly evolving resistance to our antibiotics, and we may be getting closer to a post-antibiotic world. Also a story about why an Italian prosecutor is accusing a stem cell group of being a criminal organization. So be sure to check out all these stories on the site. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, Sarah. David Grimm is the editor for our online daily news site. I'm Sarah Crespi. You can check out the latest news and the policy blog, Science Insider, at news.sciencemag.org. And that concludes the May 2nd, 2014 edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, please write us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org or tweet to us at Science Magazine. The show is a production of Science Magazine. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. I'm Sarah Crespi. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us.